know, what I did was wrap it up in duct tape and throw it into the basement, hoping that maybe it wouldn't, if it was just wrapped in duct tape and compartmentalized and thrown into the basement of my mind, that it wouldn't come out, you know, that it would just stay down there. And it did for a long time. But then the thing is, is, you know, something happens and it's like opening the door to the basement, going down there and kicking those packages around. And then you're like, oh, wait, these now have grown into zombies. And then they're, you know, stampeding up the stairs and coming into the house. Hi, and welcome to the 1CA Podcast. My name is John McElligot, your host for today's episode. And we're joined today by Manya Dotson. Um, Manya, I knew you under a different last name many years ago when we were serving in the Peace Corps together in Cote d'Ivoire, Ivory Coast in West Africa. Uh, We recently got reconnected after many, many years and wanted to get you on the podcast to talk about your background, especially in the NGO community, uh, non-governmental organizations, and talk about how it interfaces with the civil affairs forces of the Army and the Marine Corps. Um, I understand you haven't worked directly with those forces, but I think it's really helpful for our listening audience to hear about your perspective in the NGO world because they really there's really no cases, I think, where CA forces are going in a steady state or in conflict areas and there's not an NGO nearby. So okay. they're always at the table. Um, so thank you very much for being on the One CA Podcast. Thanks so much, John. I have to say... John and you and I share a connection that, like, nobody really shares in the world, which is that we lived in the same house and worked in the same Peace Corps village, and we know the same characters. So what an incredible connection that is, and I was so thrilled to hear from you. And uh, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Thank you. And so now you're, um, you, you're a global health consultant as well, coach, writer, you do some speaking engagements. What's the best way for people to find out information? Go to your website? Yes. Um, my website is www.manya.dotson. And Manya is like Tanya with an M, M-A-N-Y-A-D-O-T-S-O-N.com. Okay. Um, and that's the best way to get in touch with me. I'm also on Instagram. I'm pretty active on Instagram as well. Great. And that's just at Manya Dotson. Okay. So I wanted to dig into some of the things you talked about. So public health. Uh, social marketing, worked a lot of different issues in public health. Could you start by talking about what social marketing is? Sure. Uh, Social marketing is the discipline of using all of those very powerful tools that we use to develop and sell products and services and taking that mindset tool set and skill set and applying it to development challenges. And specifically, I've spent my life uh, applying that to public health challenges. So, you know, there's a lot of things that people could be doing and buying that would be very life-altering in a good way. And we don't always want what we need. (laughs) So I would say at heart, uh, social marketing is about helping make stuff that's good for people also really desirable okay is it connected to behavior change and behavior change communication ideas of course yeah of course i mean it's uh we 
use the four P's of marketing. So looking at your product or service, uh, really looking critically at that, looking at the placement of that product or service, looking at promotion, which is a lot, you know, very much about behavior change, behavior change communication, and figuring out why people are doing what they're doing, figuring out the alternatives the alternative options that they are choosing to the option of your product, service, or behavior. And then, um, you know, assuming that people have the dignity of choice and make choices based on some sort of calculation about value and, you know, vote with their money or vote with their presence or vote with the opportunity cost for, you know, that choice. So we're looking at those, those four things. So, pricing, people, placement service, uh, placement and promotion. Um, we're also looking at, I would say something that's really particular about social marketing is that there's this really relentless focus on the customer and what they want and their vision of value, which can be different than a public health orientation, which is like, this is good for you. And if you just were scared enough about how bad for you it could be, if you don't do it, you would do this. Yeah, And I mean, I think we all know that there's all kinds of things that we do that are absolutely delightful and absolutely terrible for us. And there's lots of things we should be doing that just don't feel, um, we just don't do them. <laughs> Even though we're very scared about not doing them, we still don't do them. So it's, yeah, it's really interesting. It's a, it's a fun discipline. And we tend to look in social marketing uh, at market, the, the entirety of a market system so all of the different places that a person might access anything related to that outcome. And then we would look at, so that would be both publicly supported services, um, subsidized services, free market services, private clinics, retailers. We're really looking at a market system and all of the different things that are happening around a human being that would influence or present them with the option to do this thing that would be good for them. Okay. It sounds very similar yeah. to, uh, for folks in civil affairs, our colleagues who do psychological operations or information operations, they probably mm-hmm. use very similar means, but very different ends in analyzing social media, analyzing how to engage with not necessarily selling a product, but maybe an idea or, or behavior. Uh, much similar thoughts. I've seen some really interesting, or I've heard about some interesting work around how terrorist networks grow through very skillful marketing Yeah, and how to take that same very skillful marketing and turn it to other types of behavior, you know, or alternatives. And when you think about public health, I thinking uh, recently of a, a funny way to get uh, what could be a otherwise boring topic, but preparedness, uh, getting families uh-huh. to prepare for a hurricane or natural disaster. CDC had a campaign for a while about equating that to uh, uh, zombies and, you know, uh-huh. uh, TV shows and movies about zombies and saying, hey, you know, you want to prepare for a natural disaster or a flood the same way you would for a zombie invasion. And that really yeah, resonated with a lot apocalypse. of people. Yeah. That's awesome. I love that. Exactly. <laughs> That's awesome. So That's I awesome. To... I love that. Yeah, it's great. And it worked. People paid attention. You know, it got in the news. Manya, so the, the national security community talks about the three Ds, uh, defense, diplomacy, mm-hmm. development. You spent 
a lot of your working career in the development side of things. What do you think drew you and and friends of yours to work in development? Um, I think I kind of accidentally fell into development. Uh, the Peace Corps for me was a, a way to prototype being a doctor before being a doctor, before committing to seven years of, you know, seven plus years and millions of dollars to medical school. And at the time I was, at that moment, I was at this crossroads where I knew that magazine editorial, I was a health editor at Fitness Magazine, was really interesting, but I just wasn't feeling that individualized impact. And there was this desire to explore and see the world and this deep curiosity about the world. So, you know, I've always had these four kind of driving qualities. One is a, a, a drive to explore the world, to know the world, and in a in a more extreme kind of a way. The second one is a deep interest in health, women's health, and like sexy health, reproductive health, and all that stuff around sexy health. Uh, a third has been this a very creative and need an outlet for creativity. I really crave and need that outlet for creativity. And the fourth has been a desire to be of service. And um, that manifested through volunteering and, you know, lots of different ways of attempting to be of service. So, you know, for me, public health, what I found was that being the medical profession, so for me it was never really a question of diplomacy or development, it was that public health, when I discovered that it was there, sat at the center of those drives. And it allows me to really express those four driving pillars of my of my personality and identity in a way that can also be productive and helpful. And in ways that, um, you know, for me, that diplomacy was never an option. Um, nor was the military. Those two things were not really a mental option for me. I was looking at it more relative to a medical career or an applied anthropological career. Okay. And then I found this, you know, this, 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 this field that was really multidisciplinary. And being a doctor was, could be great. You know, I loved working with patients, et cetera. But being a doctor is really being um, an auto mechanic working on a jelly donut. <laughs> It's That's a great really visual. procedural. Yeah. Yeah, it's really procedural. And you don't really want your gynecologist to be super creative. Right. You don't. You mean you want your waxer to be a little creative maybe, but not <laughs> your not your gynecologist, you know? So you, you know so for me sitting in that clinic and drawing mangoes and figuring out how to get you know, how to have a conversation with the community that would get people excited about building a spring box or you know, how to get the dads to buy the stuff that would help the mom prepare the things she needs to prepare so that the kid would get fed and fatten up. That was very creative and brought these things together. So, uh, yeah, it was really, I just feel like I fell into it and got incredibly lucky to find this field that allows me to, to really express all of these things in such a fascinating way. Yeah, it's so we have a, we both have a lot of friends who are still in development and uh-huh. have stayed. Um, they may not be making as much money as maybe you could have if you stayed in publishing, but it's a career uh-huh. field that they really enjoy. Their heart's really in it, uh-huh. Uh-huh. and there's the excitement to it as well. You you could be living in other countries, speaking foreign languages, 
understanding and sitting with people, breaking bread, having different meals that you would mm-hmm. never dream of before. It's very yeah. exciting. I've, lo- I've learned so much. I mean, I've, <laughs> I truly believe that I have received so much more than I have given. Um, you know, I hope that some things that I was a part of in some way have made a difference. I, I know that they have because the data is there, but I just feel like so humbled by the, by the incredible things that I've gotten to learn and see and witness and be a part of in the way that I've gotten to participate in the depths and breadths of humanity and the human experience, you know? Yeah. It's been very rich, really rich. That's wonderful. Well, so, Manya, I don't want to, I'm not going to say that you can generalize for the whole development community, and it's really helpful just to get your perspective. But you've uh-huh. also been in a lot of conversations with fellow employees, host country nationals working with you on projects. And uh-huh. we, in those other two Ds, uh, defense and diplomacy, is there a general sense of how the development community views, for example, the, the military and defense? that on different levels so first of all in when you're working in smaller countries like a togo the expat community is often a very tight-knit community and that community cuts across diplomats military and development folks who are there as expatriates um so you know often socially those can be very tight-knit social communities i think that those three the objectives of those three different Bs are fundamentally different, and the development objective uh, is, and I would say, like, the main the main difference is that, from my perspective, is that diplomats are about bringing the U.S. to a foreign environment. Military is about protecting U.S. interests, U.S. interests in a foreign environment and development is also about those things we know and particularly when uh, USAID was pulled back under the State Department but to be effective in development development workers really have to integrate and really effective development happens when there is deep local ownership and where the local government and local players and local actors are driving the agenda and development organizations are supporting those agendas or, you know, helping facilitate a conversation to align uh, those objectives with global objectives coming out of the World Health Organization. So often I have found that diplomats um, tend to be more insular and more about perpetuating an American lifestyle in the American community within a country. Um, defense, I have had the least contact with defense, honestly. So I'm not really sure what that looks like, particularly in um, the civil affairs branch. But my perception is that those activities also are fundamentally driven by a desire to ease entry and make it make the local population more open to a U.S. military presence that is fundamentally about U.S. security interests. There's a real tension there, and and development workers have to build credibility with local counterparts that this isn't about American interests 
and there isn't some sort of like um, disingenuous commitment to that country's development. And that takes time, it takes effort, and it, it's, a, it's a different orientation. Yeah, it's, it's very helpful to hear your perspective. And I think if I asked the same question of many people who have worked in NGOs, I'd probably hear a similar theme there. Stick around for the rest of my conversation with Manya Dotson. We'll talk about the reluctance of NGOs to engage with the military or be seen working with the military. We'll also talk about the burnout and emotional toll that members of the NGO community experience and where they turn for support. Mark your calendars for the 2019 Civil Affairs Roundtable to be held on Tuesday 2 April at the National Guard Armory Conference in Washington, D.C. This year's roundtable will conclude the seminal discussion of optimizing civil affairs started at last fall's symposium at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, and in the 2018-19 Civil Affairs issue papers to be published before the roundtable. At the roundtable, the discussion shifts to a more granular identification of .mil PFP pathways to guide CA modernization and continuous investment in an innovative and adaptive force that is well-networked in planning and operational relationships and persistently engaged and aligned regionally to facilitate political military goals and objectives. In addition to the speakers and panel discussions, attending members and friends of the regiment will conclude by looking at how to advance civil affairs at a more ambitious multilateral scale over the next year's cycle. In order to maximize official travel for uniformed members of the regiment, the roundtable immediately precedes the PKSOI Training and Education Workshop, which will be held on 3 to 5 April at Carlisle Barracks, Pennsylvania. For more information, including the agenda and registration, go to the Civil Affairs Association website, which is at civilaffairsassoc.org. And I wanted to ask you if, well, so civil affairs forces are very, try to, to work with NGOs and host country nationals and, the, of course, the local, state, national government in another country. Uh-huh. And there are many NGO partners who are very reluctant to work with the military. Um, uh-huh. One issue is their safety and security, not being seen necessarily going into a room or a uh, civil affairs. We operate civil military operations centers where it's sort of a hub for NGOs and State Department and aid and many other players to interact and share information, much like there might be a global health cluster or other clusters that aid helps to organize. And so I guess there's the safety and security concern, but I wanted to ask you why NGOs are reluctant to work with the military. And I I think you've already answered that because their missions are very different and sometimes opposing. Yeah, or just, I mean, just framed differently, you know, ultimately framed differently. Uh, of course, you know, I, I think the development industry over so – I've definitely seen a shift over the last 20 years that we've been doing that, or 18 years that we've been doing this. And I think it's shifted, you know, over the last 50 years that there's really been a robust development industry. This has really shifted from a situation where there is a belief from the European and American countries that if you just send Americans or Europeans in, they will inherently make things better 
And that's, um, I think the development industry has shifted way away from that to seeing that diverse perspectives on problems beget innovation, that when initiatives are locally led through very incredibly competent local leaders who are supported in some way by global professionals who are globally competitive professionals, be those professionals, you know, Nigerian or South African or, or, you know, Bangladeshi or whatever, that that is where we see the most progress. So, you know, anytime that there's, that there is community entry or that there, that you do have a, an NGO that has worked for years building up trust with, in that country, anything that would be seen to compromise that, that trust is, we'd be shy about. And, you know, blatant self-interest, blatant national self-interest is one of the things that could really compromise that trust. Okay. And particularly, I mean, governments are getting more, and everybody's getting more and more savvy about, uh, about being used for resources, you know? Yeah. Um, and like, for example, I've seen Kenya get much more savvy over the last 12 years. So I lived in Kenya for a long time about interactions with Chinese investors and the Chinese government. And like a very specific example is road projects that were done, that were contracted to Chinese contractors. Originally, the Chinese would bring in Chinese workers to work on those. And more recently, the Kenyan government is negotiating contracts where they say, okay, you can have a Chinese overseer, but all labor needs to be Kenyan labor. Sure. And, you know, really like changing the way that those, that those procurements are happening. And because everyone's getting a lot savvier about this notion of how developed countries interact with developing countries and what that power balance looks like. Manya, you mentioned earlier about the difficulty of working overseas. You know, at some point you mm-hmm. kind of got burned out, right? So could you I talk? <laughs> yeah, and that happens very often. Um, so could you talk about the challenges that you faced while working overseas? You know, is it mainly cultural integration? What about the language barriers? NGOs often face the constant struggle to secure funding and keep that going. What were some of the big things you had faced? So none of those were the things that were the hard things for us or for me. Um, I would say the top three things that were the challenges that, that I personally faced were insecurity, living for seven, 16, 17 years in highly volatile and insecure environments takes a toll. It really does. And related to that, um, repeated exposure to trauma and without the necessarily mental health services or support services to help process those things. Right. Um, and it's small things like the car accidents that you see on the side of the road, the dismembered body parts that you'll see on a drive to the beach because somebody's had a horrific road accident and the emergency services aren't there to help take care of that. It's um, how many times I've been stopped at security checkpoints with an AK-47 waved in my face and somebody, you know, making uh, lewd sexual remarks. It's been, you know, sitting at a table presenting 
scientific data and being having a, a, a government counterpart colleague feeling me up under the table, it's, you know, there's kind of a relentlessness of these things that over time I think is cumulative. The, the impact is cumulative. Um, we also, my family also, you know, we were evacuated from Cote d'Ivoire. We were, we lived through a regime almost change in Togo. We were evacuated from Togo where there was widespread civil unrest when the older president who had been president for 37 years or something died and his son took over power and there was uh, that was very tumultuous. We moved to Kenya. There was the post-election violence in Kenya. We lived through the Westgate terror attack, which was very close to home. And just this last week, my office complex in Kenya was the office complex that was attacked in this most recent terrorist attack last week. Um, that stuff built up. There's PTSD. You know, it just built up. And then the final thing that I think was most challenging for us is if you have a family and anyone in that family has kind of specific needs for, so in my family, one of my children has some needs for learning supports. She's got some learning challenges. And, you know, while the private international schools are excellent for students who are high achieving students or students who are definitely, you know, clearly college bound and don't have any particular challenges uh, when those questions started to emerge for us about how we make sure our family system has the kind of support that we can provide around those kinds of things. How are we going to get um, a kid who's maybe a non-traditional learner launched? There aren't great vocational options. There aren't great, you know, even in a market that's really well-developed like Kenya, all of the public, all of the private schools there are really uh, looking to send kids to Oxford and the British universities. So, um, you know, there, it, it was really those things, uh, language and culture and, you know, those things have been joyful and interesting and the adventure, uh, the things that have been hard for us have been more the, what does it mean to give your family the best chance to realize their potential? And I think sometimes that looked like, living this amazing life and being exposed to these incredible things. And sometimes it looked like we now need some special learning support and vocational school options. Right. So and yeah, you can't get that in country or the ones you, you can possibly access are incredibly expensive and rare. Yeah. And not just not, um, just not systemically integrated into the public schools the way that the, the American public schools have them. So yeah, yeah that, those were some of the things that really drove us back this last time to the U.S. But I have to say coming back to the U.S. was the biggest culture shock I ever experienced in my life. And it was tough. I went to a, there's a, so annual meetings that are held by the Civil Affairs Association, which brings together Army and Marine Corps members who do CA, past, present, uh-huh. and future. And there was one about a year and a half ago that I attended with many other NGO members, a roundtable discussion, talking about some challenges. And one that was uh, strongly suggested, uh, shared by members of the NGO community, was that the lack of mental health support. Diplomats get this from State Department. Members of the DOD community get it through DOD professionals, psychologists, psychiatrists. They can outsource some of that stuff for care. But when you're in the NGO community, you have nothing, right? There's no, yeah, no, there's nothing, nothing for you to fall back on. So you talk about post-traumatic stress and all the mm-hmm. things that you've seen. 
What do you do? You just talk to other friends of yours in the NGO community, or you find care on your own? You got it out. I mean, I don't even know. Uh, you got it out, I guess. Um, there's an ethos in the development community. There's this whole like street cred thing, you know, and people take a lot of pride in in being tough and being resilient, you know. Um, also, when you're working in these very intense projects and these very intense environments, there really isn't a chance to just kind of uh, take a break or break down. You just don't have that option. So you just keep going. You kind of like, you know, what I did was wrap it up in duct tape and throw it into the basement, hoping that maybe it wouldn't, if it was just wrapped in duct tape and compartmentalized and thrown into the basement of my mind, that it wouldn't come out, you know, that it would just stay down there. And it did for a long time. But then the thing is, is, you know, something happens and it's like opening the door to the basement, going down there and kicking those packages around. And then you're like, oh, wait, these now have grown into zombies. And then they're, you know, stampeding up the stairs and coming into the house. So, you know, different, I think different NGOs are starting to know that this is an issue. And so there's different options of you can talk to somebody three times or, you know, certainly health insurance plans cover mental health services, but not every market has mental health practitioners that are even there. So, I mean, I don't even know where I would have looked for a for a therapist in Togo. I don't even know where I would have found one. And then there would have been a language barrier in talking those things through in French. So, right. you just kind of gut it out. But I have to say, you know, now that, uh, now that I'm in my 40s and have a lot of friends and colleagues who've been doing this for a long time, there is a burnout. There is kind of a, a fatigue that... It feels familiar to me, and I see it in some of my military friends as well, of just folks who've lived life pretty hard. And I think that you have to have a resiliency to your spirit to be drawn to this. And so that's, you know, we probably have that kind of resilience that has driven risk-taking and all of those behaviors. But, yeah, I, I hope that, that this the... raising awareness around mental health will spill over to the development industry as well. Oh, yeah. So do I. Do you think that to the, the point of burning out at some point, whether it's you're in the military or in the development community, that it's a young person's game? That you get people who are who really want to be helpful or idealistic. They want the adventure. They want to help people and, and learn another, another culture and travel. And the same way we get young people into the military. But as you age, it just takes its toll emotionally and physically. And that people, as they get into their 40s or 50s, you know, they, they put in a career of 20, 30 years and they're done. Yeah, you know, it's interesting as a coach, many of my clients, my coaching clients are mid-career, or I would say like two-thirds through career development professionals. And a lot of people are grappling with this with this question about yeah, how much do you give for how long and and how, you know, I'm, I'm trying to reframe the conversation to myself about how to do this sustainably. You know, how to, how to, how to do it sustainably as an individual. Right. How do you... With a family. Yeah, with a family and how do you... Because, I, you know, I will say people who've been doing this for 20 years have a lot to offer. They have a lot of perspective. They know 
things. You know, we don't want to lose these professionals at just the time when they have so much to give and so many ways to mentor and so much to contribute. But if people are burning out and yeah, I don't know what the answer is to that, but it's a question that I'm certainly thinking about myself, about how I move forward in this industry and maintain the fire in my belly about it, but also participate in it in a way that is sustainable to me as a human being. Right. And, and that's the yeah. kind of conversations that you're working through now as a consultant and yeah. coach to the clients that you have in your new company. Absolutely. And the upside is there will always be development work. There will always be somewhere in the, in the, in the world a need for Americans or other people to go and assist fellow human beings uh, in times of need and to build up their country and infrastructure and their economies. And yeah. use the tools that you've gathered over the many years to improve global health conditions, uh, the ability of people to be productive in their societies, and uh, mm-hmm. the social marketing tools that you've learned will be very helpful for whatever you do next. It's probably very helpful in your in your job right now. Yeah. Well, I'll leave it at there. You know, Monty Andrews, uh, <laughs> former Monty Andrews, now Monty Dotson, after reconnecting for so many years since 2002, 2003 it was, You've had an exciting life so far with a lot more great things to come. I thank you very much for reconnecting and for being with us on the 1CA podcast. <laughs> thank you so much, John. It's been such a pleasure. And, you know, the last thing that I want to do is discourage people from from continuing this work. I, You know, after taking a little break from it, my hunger to go back, my longing for these interesting, juicy problems, my longing to connect and be back in Africa is so great that it's so overwhelming that burnout isn't even in my mind now. I just can't wait to get back to Lesotho in a few weeks and, and get back into the work. It is an amazing choice, I think, and one I've been so, so grateful to have had the chance to make and and it's been such an interesting journey and getting to meet such interesting people like yourself. Absolutely. It's so thank you. People make all the difference. Thank you. Thank you for spending some time with us. Please subscribe and come back for another installment of one CA until then be safe and secure the victory.